If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Revelation chapter 21 as we come to the end of our year-long journey through the Bible together this year. And if I could just pause even before we dive in and thank you as a, as a faith family for your love for this word. Without this word, I am hopeless as a pastor. And without this word, we are hopeless as a church. And, and so I just I want to thank you for your hunger for, your desire for the word, the way we have been able to walk through the word this year, where we will continue to, in different ways, walk through the word together next year and in the years to come. But what I want us to do today is I want us to look back and see where we have come from. Remember the things that have, have come before this in Revelation, and then I want us to look forward to see where we are going as the redeemed people of God in what is still the unfolding redemptive plan of God. So I want to start by us thinking about the question, why do we have the Bible? We've been reading through it this year. Why is it so important? Why is it so valuable? Some would say this is a book for religious guidance. Christianity is one religion in the world, and the Bible is simply the main book in Christianity. So it informs what Christians should do, how Christians should act, what Christians should believe. It's, it's a religious book, and, and one book among many other religious books, for that matter. Some would say it's, it's given to us for historical information. There's a lot of history in this book, spanning back literally thousands of years. And this book helps us to understand civilizations centuries ago. Other people would say this book is a book of moral lessons. We have the Bible so we can learn how to live a good life. We want, we want to be like Abraham or Moses or Elijah or Paul. We don't want to be like Pharaoh or Saul or Jezebel or, or Judas. And so we find on the page of Scripture all kinds of moral people and moral lessons along those lines. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be kind one to another. So the Bible is a, is a series of moral lessons. Other people see the Bible as a series of character studies. You, you can take all kinds of people in the Bible and see them as seeming examples for our lives. Many people study David and his battle with Goliath. And there we learn about courage. We study Nehemiah and his rebuilding of the wall to learn about leadership. We study maybe Peter and the disciples to learn about faith and trust. And the Bible becomes a, a collection of, of good stories with good and some not so good people all coming together in Christian history to help us learn how to grow in Christianity. So there are all kinds of ideas that people have about the Bible. And all kinds of ideas, I'm guessing, that swirl around in our minds about why we have the Bible. But if we're not careful, we will miss the whole point of this book. We will miss its beauty and its wonder and its eternal significance for our lives. And so I, I want to put before you one sentence that I think sums up the purpose of this book. You've got it in your notes there. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal who God is and how God redeems his people for his kingdom. Purpose of the Bible, to reveal who God is and how God 
redeems his people for his kingdom. Now, two things there that are particularly important. Number one, the main character of the Bible is God. Sometimes the Bible is billed as a practical handbook for every situation we walk through in life. So oftentimes people come to the Bible and our immediate question is, okay, how does this apply to my life? What relevance does this chapter or this book or this verse have for my life? But the reality is the Bible is a book that is far more about God than it is about us. This book is the revelation of of God. It reveals His glory and His character, His his nature, His ways, His works. And if we come to the Bible saying, well, what is this verse, what is this passage, what does this book teach, teach me about what I need to do in this or that situation in life, then we might run the risk of of going right past the intended purpose of the Bible that is to teach us about God. So we might know who He is. And then, now that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't have practical application for our lives. It has huge application for our lives, eternal application for our lives. But the key is the Bible teaches us about who we are in the context of showing us who God is. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment too because this is huge. There is an obvious trend in our day, yes, in our culture, but even in the church, away from the primacy of God's Word. Many churches, many leaders of churches give token acknowledgement to God's Word at, at best. Many churches and supposed worship services are filled with all kinds of stuff that is not the Word of God. They're filled with stuff that people think is more applicable to our everyday lives. So you see a lot in the church, well, here's, here's thoughts on how to manage your money or tips on parenting. Here's some principles of leadership or how to handle stress or practical thoughts that relate to our everyday lives, marriage, parenting, finances, grief management, divorce recovery, all the things that, let's be honest, we we wrestle with and we do struggle with around this room. But the danger is the Bible wasn't given us, given to us as a handbook to address how to walk through every single situation that Americans face in the 21st century. The Bible was given us to show us who God is, a God who spans far, far greater than just the 21st century, and a God who rules and reigns over far more people than just Americans walking through the different things we're walking through. And this is where the Bible begins to unfold for the beauty that it it contains, because the reality is Our greatest need in this room, with all these different things we wrestle with, struggle through in this life, our greatest need is actually not to be good parents with stress-free lives and nice bank accounts and successful jobs. If that's all that our greatest need is, then then go to Dr. Phil and get some information from him. No, our, our greatest need is to know God. Our deepest need is to know God and to walk with God. 
So when we come to this book, some would say, well, why? I'm, I'm walking through this or that in my life. Why are we going to study about the Israelites and the Moabites? Here's why. Because this story about the Israelites and the Moabites is going to help me understand the greatness of God. It's going to help me see my life in the context of his greatness. It's going to help conform me into his image and help me to walk with him by his spirit. So that, here's the beauty, the very spirit of God who will walk with you through every every marital struggle you go through, the Spirit of God who will walk with you through every parenting struggle you endure, the Spirit of God that will walk, through you, walk with you through every financial heartache you experience, every, every challenge that you face at your job, the Spirit of God is going to walk, walk with you through those things and give you the wisdom that you need based on the revelation He has given us in His Word. So, all that to say, I want us to see that the main character of the Bible is God. The purpose of the Bible is to help us know God, to see who we are in the light of who He is. So who God is and then how God redeems His people. Now what, what does that word mean? Why have we called our journey through God's Word this year a chronicle of redemption? And basically, for God to redeem His people means that God is restoring creation to himself. This book is a story about how God is restoring all of creation. We're going to see in just a minute everything in creation restored to him. God's restoring creation to himself and as part of that God is recreating people in his image. I'm going to show you what I mean by that in just a second. But redemption, when you, when you hear redemption, think recreation into the image of God. So the Bible's showing us who God is and how God redeems his people for his kingdom. Now this, this picture of kingdom is an image that I want you to keep fixed in your minds today. I want us to think about the kingdom of God of which obviously God is the king. When you think about a kingdom, there's a few essential elements in any kingdom. A kingdom is going to involve, first, people who are ruled by the king. There are, there are going to be citizens residents, members of the kingdom who are, who are subject to the king. So you've got people who are ruled by the king. You're going to have a place where the king has dominion. Where does the king rule? Where does the king reign? In the kingdom. So the kingdom involves a people ruled by the king, a place where the king rules over his people, and a purpose for the king and his kingdom. What is this, what is this king and what is this kingdom accomplishing? So any kingdom is going to have those three components. Now what I want us to do today is I want, I want to encourage you to think about God's kingdom along the lines of these three components. How God is redeeming his people for his kingdom. God is bringing his people, his subjects, citizens of the kingdom, his children to his place under his reign where he rules for his purpose. Specifically for the glory and the advancement and the spread and the declaration of his kingdom. So, in light of the purpose of the Bible, I want you to, I want you to see how it all comes together. When you came in today, you, you received normal notes on the front of your, your worship guide. But then you also received another, another sheet that says at the top, a chronicle of redemption, tracing the story of scripture. And so what I want us to do before we get to Revelation 21 is I want, us to, I want us to see, you've got this in your notes, a map for tracing the story of Scripture. 
I want you to see here the progression of the Bible as one story from creation all the way down to new creation. And I, I want you to see how everything we have read this last year comes in the overarching context of a king who is bringing his people to his place for his purpose. Because if the Bible is indeed a story about the kingdom of God and his unfolding plan of redemption, then we want to know this story. We want to be careful never to read the Bible as if it's a bunch of disconnected stories here and there that really don't fit together. I hope that's been one of the advantages this last year of reading through the Bible chronologically and seeing how this, this all unfolds together in one story. And so we want to see that. We don't want to read the Bible as just isolated fragments. We want to understand how it all fits together. We want to know the story. Second, we want to experience this story. We want to experience the story of the Bible because when we see this story unfolding in this book, we realize that we are part of this story. That our story didn't begin with us. Your story didn't begin with you. It began with a God who before the foundation of the world, as we've seen, chose to show love and mercy to his people. How he created the world. And, and what I want you to see is how Everything we've read fits into the overarching context of the story leading all the way to, to us sitting here at the beginning of 2011 to realize that we, we are not the first to come on the scene in this story. That there are generations and generations and generations of those who have gone before us. And unless the Lord Jesus comes back today, we're probably not going to be the, the last ones on the scene. And how we are... We are intended by God to be faithful in passing this story on from generation to generation, which leads to the third, third thing. We want to know this story, we want to experience this story, and we want to tell this story. We want, we want to tell people, be equipped to tell people who God is and how in His love and mercy He is redeeming and restoring people to Himself through the work of Christ on the cross. So there is... There's no better story to know, experience, and tell than this. So pull out that chart. And, and what I want you to do, and you, you might make notes along the way here and there, but I want to I recap everything we've walked through in just a, just a few minutes. You might just kind of make notes to the side. I'm going to throw out different scripture at different points that you, we're not going to have time to turn to. But that's going to all lead us to where at the bottom we get to new creation and the picture in Revelation. So this is the chronicle of redemption. We start at the top there with, with creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Think about creation in light of these three facets of God's kingdom. One, you've got people. You've got God's blessing on his people. Genesis 1 and 2, as we read, we, we saw that God creates man and woman as the summit of his creation. He is their king. They are his beloved Man and woman created to know God, enjoy God, walk with God. They experienced unhindered communion with God in a place of, follow, a place of perfect fellowship in the Garden of Eden, the, the very best place of all, a place where every relationship was perfect. Man's relationship with God, perfect. Man's relationship with one another, man and woman, relating to each other perfectly, man's relationship with his environment, perfect. 
This is God's blessing on his people in a place of perfect fellowship, all for one purpose, for God's glory to be multiplied to all peoples. If you remember back, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that God created us in his image, his image bearers. And then in verse 28, chapter 1, God says, now be fruitful, increase and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, take my image for my glory and scatter all across the earth. That's the picture. God's blessing on his people, perfect fellowship where God's glory is multiplied to all peoples. That's the initial picture we saw in Genesis 1 and 2. But then there was the fall in Genesis 3. And when the fall occurred, everything changed. Instead of just God's blessing on his people, only the blessing of the king on the subjects of the kingdom, for the first time we see God's blessing and judgment through Adam and Eve. Immediately after they sin in Genesis chapter 3, we see the judgment of God on his people. The reality that because of sin, man deserves the judgment of God. But don't miss it. There's still blessing there. God had said in Genesis chapter 2, if you disobey me, eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And yet at the end of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are still breathing. Though they totally deserved death on the spot, what God did, and you go back to Genesis 3 and you see that he he took the sacrifice of an animal, an animal's skin, to cover over the shame of their sin, a sacrifice in their place. Now God's blessing and judgment on his people through Adam and Eve in a place now, not just a perfect fellowship, now it's disrupted fellowship. All the relations that were, relationships that were perfect in Genesis 1 and 2 are now imperfect in Genesis chapter 3. Man's relationship with God now marked by guilt and shame and fear. Man's relationship with, with woman disrupted. Man's relationship with his environment disrupted. Man and woman cast out of the Garden of Eden, away from the presence of God, a flaming sword that is guarding them from going back to the tree of life. And indeed, one day, they would die. And not just them, but every single man and woman after them. Dying as a result of sin in their lives and in our lives. And as a result of all that, God's glory was now marred in all peoples. Every man and woman in this room, every man and woman in all of history, born with a sinful nature, inherited from Adam. Every single one of us born with a heart that hates God, that rebels against God. Epitomized in pictures like we see in Genesis 8 and 9 in the flood and and in the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. Now all of that then leads to the patriarchs in Genesis 12 through 50, where we see God's blessing and judgment, which we're going to see all throughout now, both blessing and judgment in the patriarchs through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The king, God, calls people to himself in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 3. Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all your descendants. And I'm going to show through you my blessing to all peoples. 
Abraham and his descendants would be recipients of the blessing of God as Abraham trusted in God. And this was, this was the key. You go back and you look at God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 18, 22. You see that it all hinged, this covenant with Abraham, all hinged on God's promises to Abraham and Abraham's faith in, trust in those promises. And so you see when it comes to place, a picture of promised fellowship. God says in Genesis 12, leave your country and go to the place, the land that I will show you. And so Abraham does. And it goes to the place that God shows him. And God says, I'm going to give you and your descendants all these lands that, are, that you see before you. God makes the same promises to Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And this land becomes the promised land where God promises he's going to establish his people. And he's going to dwell with his people in this land. And God's going to make his glory known to all peoples through his faithfulness to them. Everything in the patriarchs hinges on God's promised faithfulness to his people in that place. This part of the story, though, when you get to the end of Genesis, finishes with the people of God, now the people of Israel, going to, to Egypt because there was famine in the land. And so you've got God's people, the people of Israel, in a foreign land, clinging to the promises of God, which sets the stage for the next part of the story, Exodus and conquest, and Exodus, in the book of Exodus through 1 Samuel chapter 8. Among God's people, God raises up new leaders, where he's going to show, once again, both blessing and judgment through people like Moses and Joshua, Judges and Samuel. Blessing and judgment. Don't miss it. They're both there. Think about you might write this down. The riddle of the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. You remember what it said? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So he is just and forgiving full of wrath and full of mercy. How can he be both of these? And this is what we see. We see both on display in, in this part of the story. You think about his wrath and his judgment. Think about the, the plagues that we read about in Egypt culminating in firstborn children all across Egypt being struck down dead in their homes. And yet we see God's mercy through the Passover. And God, God has heard the cries of his people. And he brings them out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai where he re reveals his glory to them. And he, he gives them his law, his word. And he makes promises to them. And he guides them with pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. So we see the, the mercy of God. Maybe most clearly displayed when it comes to place. Because God does promise, I'm going to, to dwell among you, with you. And the picture we have, starting in Exodus, right in the middle of the book of Exodus, is the tabernacle. Where God outlines how he, in his holiness, is going to dwell among his people in their sinfulness. Through acceptable offerings of worship that are made at the, the tabernacle. And what, what God does is he gives them laws and regulations for worship in the book of Leviticus. In Numbers, do you remember? They get to the edge of the promised land and they don't trust God. And so God waits in his discipline for an entire generation to pass away.
before he leads them into the promised land, now led by Joshua. And they take the promised land. They take all of these different nations. What's the purpose of all this? The purpose is God's glory was being made known to all peoples through his deliverance. God delivered his people from, from Egypt into the promised land so that all nations might know that he is the Lord. That phrase, so that you or so that they will know that I am the Lord, is mentioned almost 50 different times from Genesis to Numbers alone. God brings them to the promised land. He says, get rid of all the foreign gods in these lands. Reflect my glory to the surrounding nations. This is God. Do you see it? He's bringing his people to his place for his purpose. The king. And yet, when you get to 1 Samuel 8, you see the people of God rebelling against God as their king. And they say, we want a, we want a human king like all the other nations. So, so God gives them what they want. Oh, it is a scary thing when God gives sinful people what they want. And this leads to the United Monarchy, starting in 1 Samuel 9, and then the story kind of repeats itself in 1 Chronicles and in the beginning of 2 Chronicles, where we see God's blessing and judgment now exemplified through Saul and David and Solomon, these three earthly kings. And you look at their lives, you will see both blessing and judgment. God's blessing personified maybe most in his covenant with David, where he promises to bring about a king through David's line, an eternal king whose throne will endure forever. And you look at his promises to David and Solomon in particular, and you see them dealing with place. God promises to bless these kings in order that they might, specifically Solomon might, build a place where God can dwell with his people, known as the temple. The temple, the place for the glory of God to dwell. Now that the people of God are established in the promised land that he has he's given to them, he says, David, I'm going to use Solomon to build this temple. He blesses Solomon for the building of this temple, a place that, that would display his glory where the people of Israel and all nations can come and encounter the glory of God. And in this whole process, we're seeing the purpose unfold. God's glory being made known to all peoples through his anointing. His anointing on these kings and the monarchy, anointing these kings for his glory. And then, then in this temple... Remember 1 Kings chapter 8? You might write this down. 1 Kings 8, 41 through 43. Solomon talks about how foreigners will hear of the great name of God and the mighty hand of God. And all the peoples of the earth will know his name and fear him. But as you read, we know what happens. The people of God were rebellious, even these kings, rebellious and sinful. And they cheapened the worship, worship of God. Kings... And citizens of the kingdom, all rebelling against God, which ultimately led to the divided monarchy. In some senses, somewhat like anarchy. It's, it's, it's northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Different kings in each kingdom, most all of them entirely evil. And so what does God do? He raises up during that time people to show his blessing and judgment through. And those people are the prophets. The prophets that, that foretell coming judgment upon God's people. The talk about how captivity is coming for God's people, that 
that the northern kingdom is going to be destroyed and the southern kingdom is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed. And God raises up these prophets to give this message of judgment and of hope, saying, turn and trust in God. And repent of your sin and he will relent of his wrath. But the people do not listen and they continue in hardness toward God. And, and so the northern kingdom, you remember, is destroyed. And then the southern kingdom is destroyed. And the temple in Jerusalem that symbolizes the presence and the glory of God among his people is, is destroyed. But that does not mean that God leaves his people altogether. The reality is we saw this in places like like Ezekiel and other prophets, that God was with his people in the midst of exile. And an exile far away from the temple, far away from the land he had promised them, he is with them and strengthening them and sustaining them, promising to restore them. And eventually he does. He brings them back to Jerusalem after the exile. And, and in all of this, God is making his glory known through the discipline of his people. God says, I'm going to make, in, in, in Ezekiel th chapter 36, verse 22 and 23, do you remember? He said, I'm going to show the holiness of my great name, the name that you have profaned among the nations, among, where, among whom you have lived. I will show the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. God in his discipline displaying his holiness and promising Isaiah chapter 60 that one day his light will shine his glory will rise upon his people and nations will come to their light and kings to the brightness of their rising and you look all throughout these prophets I hope even amidst all the darkness and judgment and wrath that we saw as we walked through that this summer and into the early fall that we also saw those glimmers of hope because all of these prophets pointing to a coming king. Isaiah says a child will be born, a son will be given, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Remember what it said? It said the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. And the stage is set at that point for 400 years later, after 400 years of silence, for God to reveal himself gloriously and ultimately in the person of Jesus. God himself in the flesh. God's blessing and judgment now exemplified and exalted through Christ. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the perfect priest. He's the promised king. Everything has been centering on this for God to be not just with his people but among his people. Incarnation. This is the beauty. When John 1 says the word became flesh, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word for dwelt literally means tabernacled among us. Just as the presence of God had been evident in the tabernacle, in the temple, even in the midst of exile, now his His presence was evident in the person of his son. God in the flesh. In John 2, Jesus basically says, I am the temple. I am the place where you meet with God. A place, God among his people, incarnation. For what purpose? So that God's glory would be made known to all peoples through his salvation. Jesus, God in the flesh, comes and he lives the life that none of us could live and he dies the death that 
All of us deserve to die. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And to all who receive Him, to those who believe on His name, He gives the right to become children of God. God's people and God's place for God's purpose, all culminating in the person of Christ. That's why the Gospels announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yet, yet you get to the end of those Gospel accounts in the very beginning of Acts and you see Jesus leave. He rises from the grave and then ascends into heaven after his resurrection and he sends his spirit upon his people leading to the present Acts through Jude, the, the era when God's blessing and judgment are shown now through his church. Beginning in the book of Acts, spanning the rest of the New Testament, chronologically and continuing even today, Christ, Christ is the judge of all, and everyone's eternity is dependent on their response to him. For everyone who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart, God, God has raised him from the dead, they will be saved and and he, Christ, is our prophet, and we are his spokesman. Acts 1 says, I will put my spirit on you, and you will be witnesses to me to the ends of the earth. He is our high priest. We have been made a kingdom of priests, the New Testament talks about. with access to God. You and I, able to come into the presence of God through Christ. He is our king. We are his heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. The church recipients of the, of the blessing of God. and Everyone who rejects Christ apart from the church, recipients of the judgment of God, God's people and God's place. This is the astounding reality of the New Testament. It's not God with his people in a tabernacle or a temple or exile, even God among his people in the incarnation. Now it's God in his people, in our bodies. Our bodies are the temple. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're the dwelling place of God. He comes and he dwells in us, with us, among us. And, and we, don't, we don't expect the nations to come and see the glory of God in the temple. No, we are the temple and we go to the nations declaring the glory of God. This is the purpose of the church. God's glory multiplied to all peoples. Go, Jesus says, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I am with you always. Extol the kingdom. Spread the kingdom. Embody the kingdom. Sacrifice your lives for the sake of the kingdom. This is the picture of the church. We are advancing a kingdom. Do you see this? Look at, look at this chart. See this. We are in a long line. A line that started with creation, with God and a people and a place for his purpose, for the spread of his glory, the advancement of his kingdom to all peoples. This is what we were created for. We are created for so much more than just stuff and pursuits in this world. We are created to be God's people where he dwells with his glory and his spirit in us, advancing God's kingdom to all peoples. We, we spend our lives for the advancement of this kingdom. See yourself in the middle of the story. Know that that which began with Abraham and, and Moses and Joshua and 
Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Peter and John and Paul. And now, and now it involves A.T. Scott and Alberdeen Huggins and every other follower of Christ in this room. And every person that we will have the privilege by God's grace to lead to Christ. We are part of something grand and glorious. And, and where, where is it all headed? What do we have to look forward to? And this is where, okay, finally we got, we got to Revelation. This is what we have to look forward to. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw, just, just picture this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable... As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Think about the kingdom here. God's people. This is God's final blessing and judgment. Now we're on both pages now. You've got this at the bottom of the chart, and then we're back over here to your notes as well. For all who have revered the king, this picture is inexpressible joy. Did, did you hear verse 6? To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Joy that is full and joy that is free. Psalm 16 verse 11 said it. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And in Revelation 21, we will experience it. This is why, don't miss it, this is why we forsake the pleasures and pursuits of this world. Don't you see? Don't you see this is why it makes no sense to store up more stuff for yourself here? This is why it makes no sense to live like this is all there is, so let's make the most of it. This is so not all there is. We are waiting for the day when we will see all there is and joy 
and satisfaction and delight that nothing in this world can compare with. We don't live for the pleasures of Birmingham. We are living for another city, another place that is coming. So lift your eyes. Lift your eyes above the stuff of this world and the pursuits of the world and see there's something better that's coming. Inexpressible joy. Heaven exemplifies his eternal blessing. We will be residents of a kingdom and heirs of a king for all who have revered the king, yet for all who have rejected the king instead of irreversible joy, there, there will be irreversible justice. This story is, is much different for those who have rejected the king, summarized there in verse 7 and 8. And you look back at the end of Revelation chapter 20, you see in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one of them, according to what they had done, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And listen to verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell exemplifies the eternal judgment of God. And there's, there's coming a day where every single person in this room will stand before Creator God in our sin and He will be just. No, no one of us wants to stand on our own merits that day. Our own merits will lead to eternal condemnation. The great news of the gospel is that you can stand on the merits of another of Christ who has come and who has paid the price for your sins when you trust in him the Bible says he clothes you in his righteousness so on that day your name book of life yes he has humbled himself turned from his pride and his rebellion and trusted in Christ turn and experiences salvation today. Men, women, children in this room, anyone who has never trusted in Christ, trust in him today for your salvation. Trust in his death on the cross, his resurrection from the, day, from, from the grave and put your life in his hands. Stand on his merits and not on your own. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Inexpressible joy or irreversible justice. Now this is a place, following here in your notes, it's a place of eternal fellowship. Now we're going to go with the, the picture of inexpressible joy here in heaven. Oh, look at this, brothers and sisters. We will be with him. Behold 
Verse 3 says, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. This is the supreme delight of heaven. Be careful here. Be very careful here. When you think about heaven, be careful not to think about mansions. Don't think about mansions when you think about heaven. That's a total misunderstanding of John chapter 14. In my house, it's, Jesus said, there are many rooms. Some translations have said mansions, but the word there is literally dwelling place. It's the word that's used here in Revelation chapter 21 to talk about how God is dwelling with men. This is the supreme delight of heaven, that God's dwelling will be with men. And we have this, like God is trying to compete with our Western prosperity, we are, we are so prone to materialism, to think of heaven in such terms. We think, people, we say, even chokingly, don't say it. Well, yes, in heaven we have all the, all the golf and all the football and all the stuff that, that we love in this world. No, it misses the point. I, I think about, before I, before I came here to pastor, was, was traveling a lot and, and preaching in different places and and. Stayed in a, in a, in a few, few not-so-nice places and, and in a few really nice places. I remember one, one house that was uh, actually right next to, uh, it was, it was a, a family, a very kind family. Uh, they lived right next to, just to give you an idea, kind of the part of town we were in, they lived right next to uh, Faith Hill and Tim McGraw. And so they were next-door neighbors. And so this, this nice, large, very large home, so I get there and I'm escorted to my room, this nice room, marble bathroom, and, and go outside and they've got all this land and cows and horses and stables. I mean, these stables are nicer than, than any house that, that I could imagine living in at that point. And, and then we, we sat down for dinner that night at this long dining room table and one of the, one of the, one of the cows from outside was placed on the table in front of us and we enjoyed this this meal and it always it was it was interesting it always seemed like the case that I would be at places like this when when Heather was not with me and so I would I would call her be like oh you're missing out on this one and she'd be with me at the at the other kind of places but but then I think of one other time when I was when I was I was staying in someone's house in in the midwest and they had said, well, we're just going to let you stay in our basement. And I just thought, okay, well, this is going to be interesting. Um, but I got there, and <laughs> this, this basement was also nicer than any, any home I had been in. And, and, and the, the coolest thing about the basement was there, was there was this huge hot tub right in front of a huge big screen TV. And it was in the fall, in the middle of football season. So, again, you know, I'm like, Heather, you're really missing out on this one. But uh, there I am. And, th and that's what we think sometimes. We think of places like that. And we think, oh, oh, heaven, we're going to have all the finest amenities this world has to offer. Don't miss it. Heaven is not a place where we're going to have all the finest amenities this world has to offer. Heaven is a place where the finest amenities in this world cannot compare to the fact that we are dwelling with God. And he is so supremely greater than all of the stuff that we could imagine put together. The beauty of heaven is the presence of God. That's, that's what we're longing for. That's what, we, that's what we want because 
When we are in his presence, death will be replaced by life. Do you see what he's saying here in Revelation 21? He says, there will be no more sin. There will be no more sorrow. Do you see verse 4? God is personally pictured. He is personally wiping away tears from our eyes. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more cancer, and no more disease, and no more starvation and hunger, and no, more, no more aches and no more pains, no more AIDS, no more separation ultimately, no more pain because death will be replaced by life. And night will be replaced by light. Listen to verse, verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. It's interesting. We don't have time to dive into it. But if you look, and we talked about this a, a couple months ago, you look at the dimensions that are described here, and what you'll see, it's, 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 it's shaped like a cube. And the reality is it's, it's shaped in a way that mirrors the holy of holies. And the picture is that there is no temple here because we are, we are literally, it's as if we are dwelling in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. And you look at the, the description here, as a result, the city, verse 23, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. You get down to verse 5 in the very next chapter, chapter 22. It says, night will be no more. They will need no light or no, no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Death replaced by life. Night replaced by light. Corruption will be replaced by purity. The end of chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then, check this out, curse will be replaced by blessing. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, the sword, flaming sword, flashing back and forth, guarding man, keeping man from the tree of life. And you get to chapter 22. So that was the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3. Now you get to the very last chapter of the Bible. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb to the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him oh curse totally replaced by blessing all leading to what I am convinced are probably the, the five most beautiful words in all of Scripture. And I know that's a bold statement to make, but, but look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 4. They will see his face. That 
is what we are hoping for. And that is what we are longing for. That, that is what this whole book is pointing toward. Toward the day when you and I will see his face and behold his glory. We will be with him and we will see his face. That is the goal of redemption. No one in our sin, we cannot see his face. There's a day when sin will be no more and we, we will see him in all of his beauty and all of his glory and all of his majesty. You may recognize the name Fanny Crosby, a famous hymn writer. She was... She was blind her entire life. and She wrote a poem once called My Savior First of All. I want you to hear part of it. Remember, she was blind, which means, think about this, which means the first person she would ever see would be her Savior. And she wrote, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side and his smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white he will lead me where no tears will ever fall in the glad song of ages I shall mingle with delight but I long to see my Savior first of all. Aren't, aren't we in a sense all the same on this one. Our vision here on earth is, is blinded by sin. And, and when we see his face, everything changed. All for his purpose, God's glory enjoyed by all peoples. This, this is the completion of the kingdom here. What we read, what we've read this last week in Revelation, a countless throng from every nation, people, tribe, and language. A multitude that no one can count from every nation, people, tribe, and language singing a new song. Revelation chapter 5 pictures the lion-like lamb, Jesus, at the center of the throne. And it says they sang a new song. Worthy are you because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, redeemed them from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom, a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Together with a countless multitude, we will declare, worthy is the king, and we will enjoy him. We will enjoy one another with him forever and ever. That, that's, that's what we're looking forward to. Oh, here, hear the claim of Christ in Revelation right here at the end. He says it three different times. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Underline it. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 7, down in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 7, verse 12, and then verse, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. That's the claim of Christ. He is coming soon. And so the cry of the church is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. That's, that's how the Bible ends. The Bible ends with a redeemed people longing for the coming of the king. Longing for the king to 
ultimately and finally bring his people to his place for, for his purpose. Obviously, the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis have, have become a lot more, more popular in light of, of movies and, and even particularly over the last few weeks. But I want to read you a quote from the last paragraph of the last book in that series. I want you to hear it. C.S. Lewis wrote, As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. For us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This, this whole chart, this, this, this whole book, it is, it is as if it is the cover and title page of a story that for all who have trusted in Christ, a story that, that is just beginning and will last forever and ever and ever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. God's people in God's place for God's purpose.